Welcome to Optimal Self, the art of becoming the best version of you. Join us as we talk with extraordinary people who are on the journey to living to their optimal self. We dive deep into their minds to learn what they do on a daily basis to create optimal results. They share their tools and insights so you can implement them into your own life to become the best version of you. Here's your host, Jeremy Herriter. All right, everybody, welcome back to Optimal Self Conversations, where we talk to incredible people who, through adversity, grit, and persistence, are forging the path of being the best version of themselves. We are lucky because they join us and they give you some of the tools to do the same. Today, I am absolutely honored to have Alan Jones, the president of Imaginos Inc. And I don't even know where to begin because, again, he is somebody who is revolutionizing the education world with their company and what he brings to the table. I don't even want to go too far into that. I want to get right to it. I'm going to open it with this, is that when he sent me the email when we were conferring back and forth of our time, the bottom of his his email says, when I wake up every morning, I have two goals, learn something and make the world a better place. So Alan, man, thank you for joining us. And I couldn't agree more with both of those. So tell us more about you. Where do those come from and how did this all get started? Those are values that I learned from my parents, very early age. And my dad was one of those guys that give you the shirt off his back. And if you, even, if you didn't need it, he forced you to take it. If you learn to take pleasure from making other people feel good, you'll never be unhappy. You don't have to be successful at it. Just the very act of trying is rewarding. So you said, if you can learn to get pleasure from making other people feel good is truly the answer, right? I mean, yes. it's so now as I mean, and it's not I, again, a zero sum game. Okay. Tell us more. It's not a zero sum game because you're what you get as much as you give. So right. it's not like if I give it to you, I gave it up. I, I don't have it anymore. I gave it to you and I got more. Hmm. <laughs> Yes, it's the old adage, and I've done a couple of solo podcasts on this topic exactly, is, is you have to give to get. And that is something that honestly, so when you say I have two goals, let's go to, to learn something for a second. How does that apply to your life? And then take it even further. How does that take you into what you do today? I, I'm a Naval Academy graduate, and I was a mechanical engineer in that part of my world. And it was not something I... I chose to do. I actually ended up at the Naval Academy because Royal Typewriter got bought out by Lytton Industries. If you can imagine how that scenario worked out, I had a scholarship through my dad's job to the Ohio University, but he worked for Royal Typewriter. When Royal Typewriter got bought by Lytton Industries, he canceled the scholarship. I had a sister who was three years younger than I am, and my parents wouldn't have been able to afford to send both of us to college. And so I needed to figure out a way to get another scholarship. And the Naval Academy was an option for me. So I went and I got that so that she could go to college as well. So I ended up in the Naval Academy and became a mechanical engineer. And one of the things about engineering that everybody should learn is that everything's part of a system. Nothing happens in isolation. So that learn something became a part of my mentor mantra in that I looked at everything with curiosity. I was always wondering what made that happen? What would have made it happen differently? What was required in order for it to occur? What parts happened before that in order for that to happen? 
that's just the way my head works. It's just a curiosity engine. And you know what? Everybody's head works that way. That's true. So true. I, I just take great delight watching little children. I go to the grocery store, the mall, ball game, any place I am, and I see little kids, and I just watch. They are little learning machines. And, and there's a wonderful book called The Learning Revolution by Dryden and Voss. And they make a fantastic point. As parents, we're always afraid that our children are going to touch something, put something in their mouth. You know, we're always watching them, trying to protect them. What Dryden and Voss are saying is that that practice is called mapping. It's neural mapping. Mm. What they're doing is they're learning what this feels like, what it tastes like, what it looks like, what it smells like. Those are our senses. And so they have to learn all of those things by doing them. And your job as a parent is not to prevent them from doing them, but to keep them safe while they are. That's a whole different perspective on the responsibility of the parent. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. We at Optimal Self, we have a term we talk about a lot, and it's generational habits. And I'd love for your take on this is that the way we came, when we were writing principles and we were coming up with curriculum and, and things that we, we wanted to help people and get to people, one of the things that we hear a lot of is generational wealth. And, you know, the which is, again, wealth handed down to generations. And what's interesting is if you really study it by that second and third generation, a lot of times, most of that wealth, if not all, is gone. And it's because the person who actually built the wealth didn't pass down the habits of how to get there. They've just passed down the wealth. And, the, and then the yeah. ones who were the, the receivers didn't know how to manage it or build it or keep it going. So, and, and what you're saying there too, as parents, right? Our job is to guide. It's not to just fully stop, right? Or, you know, what do they call it? The Zamboni parent now, right? Is that you're clearing the ice for your kid all the time and they always get to skate on beautiful ice. No, they have to trip and fall. They have to hit some speed bumps, right? You know, can you explore that that topic a little bit more? Because I think your insight is is will really help the listener. I had the pleasure of working with Ken Olson, or for Ken Olson, and with him a little bit. Ken Olson was the founder and president of the Digital Equipment Corporation, and uh, he had a wonderful saying. I worked on a program that helped to train the senior managers to be better managers, and most of them were engineers, and so they weren't by nature managers. They were project managers, but they weren't business managers. So I helped him build that program. And he had a wonderful saying. He always talked about if he had an engineer that was working for him that never made a mistake, and that engineer wasn't much good to him. I said, what are you saying? He said, you only learn when you make mistakes. You don't learn when everything goes right. He had a saying for it. He called it failing forward. And he wanted his engineers to constantly be failing forward. That's the process I'm talking about. Just before we started live here, I had asked you, is this going to be a visual or an auditory? And you said it's going to be some of both. The reason I asked that is it goes all the way back to the time of Confucius. Confucius said, I hear and I forget. I see and I remember. I do and I understand. So I'm looking forward and hoping that more people will see this than hear it because they will learn more from seeing it. And then subsequently, I hope they will do some of the things we've described so they will actually understand. Yes. Ooh. So I want everybody who's hearing this to stop what they're doing, jump over to the YouTube channel, and it will be, and it's on there so you can actually see it. It's so well said. 
So knowing what you, you know, for myself and reading what you do today, let's give some context to the listener. So what is Imaginos? What are you guys doing? Where do you see the education system and, and how can how can we take this thing into the future and, and help these these young kids like you were speaking of? How do we do that? And what is on your plan for the future? I just ran across a, a video recording in my iPod. Listen to it again. It's by an old friend of mine, Roger Shank. He's a Dr. Roger Shank. He's a professor, a computer scientist, and an educator. And he, he was being asked about public education. There's only two things wrong with public education, what we teach and how we teach it. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I love it. I, I couldn't agree. Yeah. Keep going, please. Right. Yeah. He has an organization or a company called Socratic Arts, and it's all about experiential learning. Everything is done. So he starts off by asking the kid, What's your interested in? And then he builds a curriculum around what the kid's interested in instead of the other way around. So I think it was, I forget who it said, What we're looking for is students in search of knowledge, not knowledge in search of students. We shouldn't be giving kids. Algebra. How many times have you used your understanding of the upper and lower limits of a parabola? How much value have you received from knowing that the Battle of Hastings was fought in 1066 and William Conqueror was there? I still remember it, but I have never used it. So we ought to be putting things in the context of something that the student is interested in. And so here's where Imaginus gets created. We know for, from the research that people learn best when they teach it to somebody else and they learn best in learning team because that sets up the dynamic where you're teaching each other. So we want to create an environment and provide the tools that make it possible for teachers to customize the learning for every every student. So we're building an artificial an analytics engine. And once we get a critical mass, we'll be able to ask students, what are you interested in? If this kid says, I'm interested in trains, I'd like to know more about trains. You know what? He's not the only kid or she's not the only kid interested in trains. Maybe the only kid in the classroom. The classroom is an artificial border in today's world. We learned that with COVID, right? So I can find kids who are interested in trains and teachers who are interested in trains and bring them together in a virtual group or team and structure some learning around trains. Another kid's interested in frogs, okay? Back to trains for a second. With trains, you can get into all kinds of interesting mechanical engineering things, stresses, velocity, momentum, friction, heat. There's all kinds of things that you can learn about while you're learning about, and you don't have to be a graduate level learning on it. You can start off just learning about heat. You know, what causes heat? Well, oxygen, you know, fuel, oxygen, and heat come together, they fire, you know, simple stuff. You start off with the simple stuff and then you just keep building, keep building, keep building. Mm -hmm. Somebody's interested in frogs. Well, frogs have a habitat. You're already on the way to, what do you think? Green mm -hmm. and Climate change, right? Climate, yeah, but for sure. Their whole habitat is all is endangered because of climate change. So they didn't say they were interested in climate change. But if they're interested in frogs, you lead them through the process of understanding what required for frog to be happy, clean, and water within a certain temperature. Oh, by the way, if, if their biome biome dries up and goes away, they don't have a place to live. So how do you keep that fresh water for them? And if the water gets polluted, they can't live. Neither can we, but that's that's the next level. So if the frogs can't live, we can't live. So you don't start by teaching them, deciding that they need to know how to do algebra. You start by deciding what are they interested in knowing, and then what do they need to know to be able to understand it. And then you show them not. We have a rule for our teachers: you never give a student an answer. 
to help them find the answer because they're not going to be in school much longer. Whatever grade they are, compared to their lifetime, they're not going to be in school much longer. Eventually, they're going to have to learn it themselves. So your job as a teacher is not to show them the answer, show them how to find the answer, and then show them how to use that information to create the next level of inquiry and build on that. That's what we're excited about. Wow. I mean, I I love the thought process because, you know, there's – I'm going to screw it up, but it's good arts law or something, right? But it is basically saying – in our life education system, especially, is that it's been about getting a good grade and not about learning. We're no longer worried about the what we're actually teaching, what they're actually learning. The kid, especially once you get past those early grades, you know, and, I, and I'm, a, I'm guilty of this. I was an athlete. So I had to have a certain grade to be eligible. I had to, ha- in college, I had to have a certain grade to keep my scholarship. And so I'm guilty of it. I didn't care about that, what they were teaching. I cared about knowing en- enough to get a good grade so that my scholarship was there so that I could go run on baseball fields every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But as you're saying it now, and now that I'm now where I am today, man, learning is, is part of my every day, every single day. And I wish the education system was built around just what you said, the interest the being able to learn in things that I want to know about, but learning the things that I'm still going to be able to use progressing in my adult life. So when you say that, right, and me coming through the education system, me having degrees, me like, I think, wow, that seems like a massive endeavor. And so where do you start with something like that? How do you get traction? Because everything that you're saying, Alan, is absolutely true and could benefit every child, you know, in the United States, but in the world. So how do you start on that? You, you hit on an important point. If I'm trying to customize the education for every child and I'm a teacher in a room with 25 to 30 kids, it's physically and intellectually impossible. I need a tool to help me do that. And that's what Ed managed our analytics platform. So it'll... It'll facilitate that learning. So that software will crunch the data and it'll say, okay, if you're a fifth grade English as a second language young woman, young woman, and you're struggling to understand some particular topic, what's the best resource for you to learn that? Mm-hmm. Data exists, but nobody you can't access it today. We're going to collate that data and make it available. We will give you a list of resources that fit who you are as a learner. Along with that, for the teacher... We're going to provide what are called authentic assessments. So as you were pointing out, it's all about the tests. Tests are just money makers for the test company. They don't provide any data. And if, in fact, if, if you were with a doctor and they waited until the end of the semester to give you a test to determine what was wrong with you, you'd be dead. So giving a test at the end of the line is a stupid model. So we give constant authentic assessments. The teachers walk around and they've got a handheld device and then they just touch the kid's name. And it's going to have a list of characteristics or activities to look for. Is the student actively engaged? Do they seem to understand the topic? Those are authentic assessments. You're not asking them for data. Data is the use, most useless thing in the world. Or, excuse me, raw data. Aggregated data and analyzed data is valuable. But just being able to recall something has almost no value. Unless you want to make a permanent career as a Jeopardy contestant. <laughs> Oh, man. I love it. You know, what comes to mind, you know, my career now is is in the real estate field. And I coach and run offices that 
I mean, one office has had well over 300 agents. And it's amazing that the National Association of Realtors, that 87% that actually passed that test are out of the business within two years. And again, it's because the only thing is to make money for the test taker, right? Or for the test, you know, they want you to pay to go take this test and they just need to keep funneling you through. See, the problem would be for them is if they actually made this in a way that they could learn how to run a business, be a CEO, how to, you know, run a sales company, how to be a, like all the things that you really have to do in this business, that they would be out of business because now you'd have people succeeding and you'd have this great a number of people succeeding in the business and now your model doesn't work, right? Taking that same situation, instead of the, the current model of giving the whole book to study and then the test to take, put them in teams, okay? And you, you divide the teams into half. One half is going to be in this, it's like the program is two semesters long, let's say. And half the people on the team are in the first semester and half are in the second semester. What they do is they work on projects. So you give them an art, a simulated project of we got this customer with this kind of a family and this kind of income and these kinds of interests, this kind of cultural. How do you find the best home and how do you sell to that customer? So you make it, you set it up as a real project and you set half of the kids, half of the people, the first year are the ones that are the customers. They pretend to be the customer. Second year people pretend to be the realtors and they work together towards a process of understanding what it takes to lead a person to the right decision, purchase the right home, and they critique back and forth because the person who's a beginner is going to say, that didn't help me. And so the, there's learning happening in both directions. So we do that in our school. Our kindergartners are in with the first graders. Second graders are in with the third graders. That's exactly what happened. They teach the first and second grade curriculum twice. The first year, you introduced to it the second year you master it the second year you're the teacher and i told you before you learn something best when you teach it this is so effective that we had to redo the curriculum because kids were mastering stuff middle school stuff before they ever got to middle school because they really understood it they were doing it and so they learned it and they owned it the other thing we've done is we team kids up we created a culture it was interesting i was visiting a model school that we used and one of the kids that was with us was a, I think he was a seventh grader. We were going from the, we just visited a couple of elementary classes and we were heading over to the middle school. We asked him, where, are you, where do you go from here when you finish with us? He said, I go to my manners class. Manners, what's that? He said, well, we get concerned because we have such diversity here. And I don't want to use the word diversity, but that was the point. So many different cultures here that we were insulting people unintentionally by saying things that were insensitive to their culture. We didn't want to do that. So we created a course called Manners where we learn about each other so that we don't make anybody feel uncomfortable or feel bad. The kids came up with that course, okay? So now you've got a house. You know, on Harry Potter, they have houses, Hogwarts, and they have the different houses in Harry Potter. At colleges, they have houses, fraternities, stuff like that. What they do is they allow the big class to be reduced to small groups. So each house has kids in the 9th, 10th, and 11th, and 12th grade. They stay together all four years under the same teachers. And they, they compete for grades, and they do things well, whether it's in sports or other competitions, they earn points. 
they screw up, they lose points to the team, you know. And it's, it's a serious but fun competition. So we had a woman, we were doing a focus group one time. And we asked, what's different about this school? She raised her hand. She said, I have a fifth grade daughter. She's really very, very bright. So she's intellectually gifted to the point where in the public school, they had already advanced her to the sixth grade. And she was way ahead of them. So they were going to advance her to the seventh grade. And she said, and intellectually, she's ready for that. But emotionally and physically, she's not a seventh grader. I don't want her hanging around with a bunch of girls who are figuring out puberty. That's not a rush for me. So this child came to our program. She's intellectually doing eighth, ninth grade, whatever the challenging level of her work is, but she's in with her own peer. That's the way the system should work. We have another young lady came in. She was visually impaired. And her experience in the high school, the public school, was she was being bullied. Just because kids do that. They see a weak kid and they bully the kid. It's disgusting, but it's part of the genes, part of growing up. This girl was the sweetest thing before she got to that school and then started being bullied. And her response to being bullied was to bully back. Changed her personality, changed her outlook. It was just, mother was just distraught. Came to our school and her team took her in and nurtured her, supported her. And instead of being bullied, she was cared for. Totally returned to being a sweet person she was supposed to be. So you can do those things in school if you don't focus so damn much on getting the right grades and passing the right tests. Yeah, well said. It goes back to, I mean, we talk about this a lot in Optimal Self, is environment matters. You know, you've probably Jim Rohn, right? The sum of the five people you hang around, you know, you're the sum of them, those kind of things. But what, what I hear you saying, which is really interesting, is, and we say this a lot too, is, we can create those environments. You're seeing adolescents or even young children go from, okay, I'm bullied. Well, now I learned that. So now I have to bully back, right? But then you put them in, you put them into that environment where you're like, no, you don't. Here's, you can be, the, you know what I mean? Like, and, and they adapt and they, they adopt that environment. So again, when we are, when we're hearing these things of bullying or we're hearing these, you know, all these different you know, descriptions of what goes on. But the truth is it's the adults that are creating the environment that we're allowing for based on, you know, because we're so focused on whatever, a test or a grade or a time component where I hear you saying, Alan, is what we need to do is get them because when you build interest, anybody right now, right? In, in the psychology, right? They have a, the self-determination theory right? And the number one is competency, meaning you are more into, you will be more motivated, inspired in a subject, in a thing, and in whatever, if you're competent in that, right? And I say that all the time. We don't, I don't like to do things I'm not good at. And, you know, in today in my life, I don't have to, right? But yet here we are putting these children or, or we're teaching that, no, you, you have to be, you know, we're putting, giving things that they don't want, so then they're not competent and then they don't want to do it. And then they, you know, they act out in a way or they even worse, they regress and they come into this shell and they, they don't want anybody around them because we're creating that environment. What it sounds to me is use is like, no, let's put these kids, let's put people because adults could benefit from this as well. That's the thing. I believe what I read is it's K through 12, but the things 
that you're teaching, man, we can apply those to adults as well. Well, I, I, I read somewhere that 80% of the stuff that you learn in school, it'll be replaced five years after you graduate. Oh, yeah. No it'll question. New information. Or the other way to look at that is 80% of the stuff you need to know five years after you graduate didn't exist while you were in school. So it's not the schools didn't teach it. It wasn't existing to teach. So our responsibility as educators is not to fill your head with the stuff that may not be useful anymore, but to teach you how to get the stuff when you need it and use it. We create lifelong learners, and that's what you were just getting towards. It's, it's, for some reason, we have this mindset that education is a terminal event. Once you graduate, that's the end of education. It's not I don't know why anybody ever considered that to be a reasonable situation. You never stop learning until you die. That's what I'm saying. You learn something every day. The other thing we do at our program is we have a longer school day and a longer school year. And if, if you did that in a public school in the present conditions, that might be considered cruel and unusual punishment. But if you do it in a situation like ours, we actually had a student who was in our model school who he was the only child in the family that was attending this model school. This was family who were in the public school. And Emily was going to Disney World. He wanted to stay behind and go to school. That's how much... Kids are born learners. They want to learn. And if you give them a situation where they can learn, they don't want to leave it. That's what they're, they're voracious learners, insatiable learners. And somehow public education beats it out of them by the time they're in the eighth grade. And it even sounds like, I mean, to have a kid, a child choose to stay home and go to school rather than go to Disney World or any vacation for that matter. What that tells me, and I say this a lot with children now, is they're going to tell you what they're getting out of whatever situation that is, right? Whether they go and play on a baseball team or a basketball team, or they're going to school or they're going to math camp, or you can pick whatever, right? It doesn't really matter. But even in a sport, which, you know, a lot of times is fun. If you get a kid that comes home and they're like, I don't want to go back, right? There's a reason they're telling you there's a reason, not necessarily that they're lazy, not necessarily any of that. So when you say, oh, this kid would choose this. It's because the environment is conducive for joy for him. Yeah. And so I want to keep going. It has interesting impact on the family too. We teach current events. Kids read the local newspaper and at the upper level, they read the national newspapers. We've had parents say that it's changed the dinner dynamic because it used to be, what did you do in school today? Oh, nothing. Now it's, what did you do in school today? And off they go talking about what they read in the paper and what's happening in the country and the world and in their city. And so it's changed the family because the family is now part of that learning experience. Not like they didn't try it before. They said, what did you learn in school today? Nothing. It's true. They didn't. We also have a longer school day and a longer school year. So our kids have, they do internships, apprenticeships. They do community. They're required to do 200 hours of community service before they graduate. They're involved in the community. They also take college courses, not AP courses, but actual college courses. They attend college starting as freshmen in high school. A lot of these kids have, fam have come from families that nobody in their family ever went to college. So, because this is the Central Valley of Northern California, San Joaquin County area. A lot of these are families that you know, lower middle class. It's not a typical career path for their family. It didn't occur to them they could do, the college, do college, let alone go to college. But now they're successful. They're taking college level courses starting as freshmen in high school. And they're succeeding, they're passing. We had one young girl graduated from the school with a high school degree, and the same week she got her associate's degree in the local college. 
She completed two years of college and four years of high school. And she applied for and was accepted and began as a junior the following season, the following year, September, at UC Berkeley. Not exactly a safe school. So that's the kind of outcomes that we have as a little anecdotal, we know it worked kind of statement. So how long have you been working on this and implementing the current style, the curriculum? And how many are coming out? How many make it all the way through? Do you guys have some, I mean, obviously aggregated data, right? Is the thing that's showing, I mean, because what that tells me is now we have a proof of concept, right? Okay. We've got to get some kids in. We got to see if what we believe to be true is true. And, you know, that's going to tell the story. So uh, how far along are you guys in that? and, And where do you see it going from here? Model school was created just over 20 years ago. And it was done by the then superintendent, Dr. Keith Larry. He took three teachers, an elementary, middle, and a high school teacher, gave them a year, said, I want you to design a school that's built entirely on proven best practices. There are no sacred cows, and you know you can change anything you want to, but it all has to fit together as a whole. They created this program, and they started, I think it was fourth grade through eighth grade, and then they grew both directions until it was a K-12. And now they've been operating for 20 years and, and doing great, great. But they have no incentive to do anything beyond just be great. They're not a business. Their goal was to do a good job for their students. We started watching what they were doing. We were involved in it. And uh, my, my late friend, Dr. Jack Hall, who's a friend of Keith Larrick, he supported and involved in this project. And he decided to create the company to take what they were doing there and make it a company to transform other schools to that model. We started working on that. And sadly, or five years into get, trying to get things started, building support, corporate support, political support, Jack has a heart attack and was gone. And uh, he was the driving force. He was the funding source of the community. So it kind of founded for a while. And then about three years ago, his son's thought came to me and said, I want to go back and pick that up and, and see what we can do with it. So I got working with Scott. And I looked at it and I said, you know, the question is, what's it going to take to move it to the next level? And the answer to me was apparent, and that is, we've got to have the curriculum and a learning management system and an analytics platform to manage this whole thing, because it's so complex, which we won't be able to do it and keep track of it. Because it's important, if you do it, to measure it. And what was it, Peter Rucker said, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So we have to constantly be measuring it to see what's working. And if something isn't working, we have to understand why it's not working. And then the, the, it's the other thing that the analytics platform does for us. You remember who Donald Rumsfeld is? He just recently passed away. He was the Secretary of Defense. Don Rumsfeld. Uh-huh. Yep. He had a saying. He said, uh, there are things that you know. We call those the knowns. Then there are things that you don't know. They're the unknown. And then there are things that you don't know that you don't know. And those are the unknown unknowns. And I add to that, and those are the things that need to bite you in the butt or give you a great opportunity. And how do you find out what those unknown unknowns are? That's where analytics comes from. Do you watch, you're a baseball guy. You, you watch Billy Ball a couple of times, I'm sure. Yeah. Not only, I played during those times and I actually was in the movie, <laughs> Moneyball. So. Oh, okay. So you can understand. Where I'm I going do. With this, is what they found using analytics was the most significant statistic for hiring or drafting or signing players was, you remember? 
Uh, I mean, it depends on the position, right? On base percentage. No, no, no. It's absolutely. It was on base percentage. On base percentage, right? Yeah. That was the most significant single statistic for team success was to bring people onto the team who had a good on base percentage. You can't score if you don't get on base. <laughs> it seems obvious in retrospect. Right. That movie shows it so beautifully. That, you know, all these veteran. Coaches and managers and scouts were sitting in this room, these old crusty guys. And they were all guys, obviously, at that point. And they're all sitting there. And this young kid, the analytics guy, comes in and comes in with Billy. Was it Billy Martin? Was it coach? Yeah, Billy. It was his his assistant who came in and, yeah, who had all the analytics. Yeah. yeah. Kid came in and Billy said, this, we're going to follow what this kid's telling them. And they looked at him like he was crazy. Yeah. They went from last to first. So that's what we're saying we're going to try to do in education. One more example, uh, Aristotle, you've heard the expression, the whole can be greater than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. Right? You've heard that expression. Yeah. But what most people don't hear is the following, the statement they said following that. This is only true if the whole is more than just a pile of parts. It has to be organized and understood and analyzed. And that's what analytics allows us to do, is to take that pile of parts, analyze it, organize it, and get information from it and it informs good decisions. That's what we're trying to do. That's where we're going. So it's interesting to me, you know, I mean, again, obviously I can, I understand the baseball analogy because now that has taken over baseball. I mean, people, they don't even make a decision. They, I mean, in-game decisions are now made based on the analytics. They're not even going off a of gut and watch and feel anymore. They're looking at a number and then they go, okay, do that. And they go, you know, but my point is this, is that, okay, so you have this massive institution, this multi, multi-billion dollar industry baseball, right? Who is now, they got proof of concept and the adoption was actually rather quickly. The other organizations, the, the owners, the adoption was quick. If yeah, you because think. it's a competitive environment. Right. So that, that's not competitive. Exactly. That's my right. That's my question to you is so here we have the data, here we have the proof of concept, but yet we almost have pushback or fight the adoption of this, which is the betterment of our children and our futures. One of the things that we have going for us that has not typically been the case is that most education reforms are handed down from on top. So the administration will come to the teachers and say, we've got a new way of teaching math. We've got a new curriculum for social studies. And we want you to follow this curriculum and do these things to implement it. The teachers are in a no-win situation. If it works, the administration takes the credit. If it doesn't work, the teachers can complain. So teachers are reasonably reluctant when education reforms are driven from that perspective. Yeah. In our environment, the teachers run the school. So if they're going to implement a reform, it's because they decided they needed to implement a reform. So not that somebody else did. I mean, they literally run the school. There was a budget crunch in California, and they had cuts in one year. They managed their budget. The teachers did. But they sat down, and they looked at what they were, and they said that three options. came boil down to three options. Get rid of a teacher, get rid of a program, take an across-the-board pay cut. One of those three things had to happen in order to have the budget balance. Now, their criteria was very easy. They said, what will have the least negative impact on the students? And they decided to take an across-the-board paper. Hmm. Most people would have not guessed that the teachers would have had that as their number one. 
when you give the teachers the authority to run the schools, they feel ownership and they make good decisions. For that reason, then, they also support the adoption of this program into their district. Right. So, so we don't have some of the issues that typically held back previous transformational or activities. Because the teachers get to decide how it's implemented. Wow. I mean, that's again, it's it goes back to the the way that you teach. Right. If you're going to give the kids the opportunity to learn and then teach immediately. Right. So that's their path to mastery. Right. We understand that that cements learning at a, at a very high level. But at the same token, you know, if that's the model, then the model works on all levels. Right. So the teachers understand they run the budget. They run the quote unquote curriculum in a way that is you know, that they have some say so as well, because that again, you're going to, it sounds to me at least like you are, you're breeding an environment of success, which success is the willingness to learn. That's it. So. And I mentioned earlier that they all do an internship and apprenticeship. They also have a career course they take where they create a small business. What are you interested in? You know, I'm not asking you what you're going to be doing 20 years from now. I'm asking you, what do you think you want to be doing tomorrow? After you graduate, what would you like to do? Unless you have a little small business that you, you and your friends, so that, you know, there's four girls there and they decide they want to become engineers and work on designing a new bridge. The careers program then is coming back around to the Confucius community. They're learning by doing. So all of the things that they've been learning all along, they now take those things and they use them. I remember I hear and I forget, I see and I remember, I do and I understand. They're doing. And so things that they've learned along the way, they go back. Now all of those things are fitting together for them. So they'll own them. So that five years from now, 10 years from now, 40 years from now, they'll remember that they used how they used that. And they also remember how they've learned what they needed to know in order to do something that they didn't know how to do. For sure. You know, it's interesting. There's there's several companies that I know of. The one that comes to mind, there's several companies that I know that are at least multi-million, you know, nine-figure businesses, if not billion-dollar businesses that started because they were writing, you know, as a thesis or something in, you know, in college. They, they were like, oh, this would be this would be cool, right? And then they dig in. Again, you learn by doing. Bowflex is, is one of the companies in the fitness industry as it the guy designed it, you know, it was a design thing that he just, it had to do it for class. It was literally, I had to do it to get my degree and he was working towards it. And it turns out, I mean, it turns into a billion dollar corporation. So again, it's learning by doing, never set out to do that. And I think, I think it's important for the listener to understand too, is everything that they're getting, you know, your wisdom. And one of the things that also came to my mind with you when I was reading the bio and I was doing the research is... The, the thing that came to my mind was the man in the arena. I believe it's Roosevelt who, who, who said it. And it basically said in, the, in, you know, in the shorter term is, you know, it's not the critic that counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena. And, you know, and reading about you being a teacher, you've had your hands dirty. You've been in that arena in many, many different instances of, you know, and now bringing it back to saying, wait a minute, how can we do this better? But now how, and, and how do we truly, again, your own words every morning, 
make the world a better place. So the listener today, right? I mean, okay, maybe they have kids and they're they're hearing this and they're saying, hey, how do I get involved? Are these schools around me? Is there anywhere that I can find this education system? I love what, you know, I love when Alan's talking about. So how would somebody get their kid involved, their child involved? I want you to go from that. And then I have one more side of that is how do us as parents, how do us as adults take what we heard? What's an action item or what's a lesson that we can take today and apply to our own lives that, that maybe we could even make our own world a little bit better? Well, the first question was... First question is, if, if I have a child, how do I find out about, about this? Where we are right now is we're raising capital in order to build the tools so that we can start transforming schools. They want to support what we're trying to do. They should go to our website and invest and sign up and then stay involved. And when we are ready, they'll be involved and they'll know that they can go to their school board and say, I want you to go look at this process. I want to see if we can transform our school that lot. So that's the first thing is to just get involved, make the world a better place by investing in it. In terms of what, as a parent, what you do, be curious and show your kids what importance of being curious. If you're walking down the street and there's a crack in the sidewalk, why is there a crack in the sidewalk? Who, what, when, and where don't matter. How and why are everything. So if you're walking down the street and there's a crack in the sidewalk, how did that get there? Why is it cracked? Well, it could be that there's a tree there, and that tree extends out a root, and that root grew, expand up, and potential strength of the concrete is no longer enough, and it just well, simple observation. You know, why is there a walk light at the sidewalk? It's just a why question. Sounds like an obvious answer. If you start answering the why question, well, how do they know how long the, that walk light should be walk? Right. So and. How frequently should you have walk lights? Should you have them at every light? Should you have sidewalks between lights? There are more questions than you can imagine. You just have to encourage curiosity. That's the most important thing you can do as a parent. And not just encourage it, but demonstrate it. Well said. Uh, at Optimal Self, we I preach this and teach it as well, is you have to do for yourself before you can do for anyone else. You know, the old... And you're on the airplane and the cabin pressure changes and here comes the mask, right? And when you're on there, you run enough planes, they say, put yours on first before you try to help any, even your own child, even the child sitting next to you or whatever. And that analogy in life is real because in that case, that cabin pressure goes and you are starting to help other people. You're going to lose your oxygen. You're going to cause more havoc and wrong because you're going to force other people than if you just take that two seconds, five seconds and do for and get your set and then help others where in our lives, it's the same way. If you're not taking care of yourself, you said it right now, you can encourage curiosity, but if you're not demonstrating it, what will they really understand? I, I use a very simple one. If you're the person telling someone else to go make their bed and they walk by your room and your bed's not made, what are you really telling them? Right. It's the same concept. And, and I, I love where you're at with that. I loved what you said. I want to re, I want to say it again. It's not the who, what and when that matter. It's the how and the why. Man, that is strong. And, and I want people listening to dig into that because that's really, really strong. If you take a listen, because we're so caught up in whose fault it is and who did it and what they did. And we, we worry so much about others when we when we never even get right. I always call it 
especially in Western culture and even in Western medicine, you know, we treat the symptom, not the cause. We're so fast to you have a a runny nose and we want to just give them a, you know, something. We don't even know why the nose is running. We're just going to give them a pill or, or whatever it is. Right. We're not really, you know, and, and we do that a lot in our own lives. And man, I, I really appreciate everything that you've shared today. Yeah. Two words. You should say in front of your child at least once a day, I wonder, fill in the blank. The wonderful thing about today's technology is you've got the answer in your pocket. That cell phone's got a computer built into it with access to the world. Right. So, so you, can, you can wonder and get immediate response, positive response to that. And you can learn it in real time. Used to be if you wanted, you had to wait till you could get to the library or someplace to look it up. Now you can wonder and you can know right away. But it's that as a parent, at least once a day, your child say, I wonder. I love it. All right, Alan, we're going to hit the, the last part of the show. It's And I call it quick hitters. I pretty much know the answers to these because you're so driven. But we're going to go with it. I want your I want your gut reaction, okay? So the first quick hitter is... What does impact mean to you? What do you want to leave? What's the impact that you want to leave? I want people to rethink what, the way we do education so that it better prepares people to have successful lives. Well said. And our second and our last one is the word discipline. How do we need to, how do you use discipline in your life? What are you disciplined about and how has it manifested for you? Discipline in education has a, a different connotation. Sure. Because it, it Basically, it refers to subject matter. And to me, that's anathema because nothing happens in the discipline world. Everything happens in the multidiscipline world. There's no mm. algebra world or history world or English language world. There's a world. So discipline in that sense is anathema. Discipline in the sense of having the concentration of focus uh, to maintain your energy and, and achieve something. That's, the, that's where I am right now and trying to drive getting funding to transform public education, staying on task, staying focused, building support, and building the tools so that we can fix the problem. Mm. I started off, I gave you a thing from Roger Shank about schools, what they teach and how they, one two things wrong, what they teach and how they teach. On that same interview, he's talking about listening as being a bad method of learning back to the old hearing, and I forget. And his metaphor comes back to what you just said. It's reminded me of it. How many times you've been on an airplane and listened to or heard the stewardess or steward precautions, pre-flight instructions about how to get off the plane in an emergency? Countless times. Do you remember any of it? No. (laughs) Because we heard it and we forgot it. So I'll leave you with that. Don't be satisfied with just hearing things. You have to do them to understand them and hold them. Well said. I couldn't agree more. Well said. Well, I mean, I hope everybody replays this because there's so many incredible nuggets in there. You know, I, I go back to the first thing you said early on when you said, learn to get pleasure from making other people lives better or feel good. And that it's not a zero sum, right? You give to get. And uh, Alan, man, we are we are better for you being on here today. And, and I truly, truly appreciate it. So thank you so much for joining us. You know, I hope all of you go out, check out what they're doing. All of the links will be in there. All the links will be in the description. All the links will be part of this. 
And I say this all the time. Don't take Alan's word for it. Don't take my word for it. Do your own research. Understand like you just got two guys that are very passionate about making the world a better place through education and understanding. And so, Alan, we appreciate you, man. I thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for the opportunity to share my voice. And uh, till next time, ladies and gentlemen, get out there and be the best version of you. Subscribe to Optimal Self wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. For more information on how to be the best version of you, visit OptimalSelf.today and follow at OptimalSelf1 on Facebook, at Optimal underscore Self on Instagram, and subscribe to Optimal Self on YouTube. Thank you for listening.